Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you rang in the new year with someone special and you're starting a new chapter in your relationship in 2023, Indochino can help you look your best on your big day. With their huge variety of customizable details and fabrics, Indochino lets you design your own unique look from made-to-measure blazers and suits to a custom, portrait-worthy tuxedo, all with no tailor necessary. Shop online to set up your measurement profile and choose your fabric and customizations. Or if you prefer an in-person experience, book an appointment at an Indochino showroom to work with an expert-style guide. Then sit back while your suit is made for you and delivered straight to your door. Suits start just $4.49 and premium fitted shirts start at $89. So if you're ringing in 2023 with wedding bells, plan your custom look with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code NEWCHAPTER to get 10% off any purchase of $3.99 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O dot com. Promo code new chapter. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Alex Kalanokas and this is the Autosport Podcast. Welcome to our latest episode, which is the latest in a new mini-series we've been running for the podcast. It's a series of debates and discussions around the ranking of the top drivers from some of Formula One's most famous teams. And this time around, we're discussing a team that was a front-runner for much of the championship's history, but of late has been stuck at the back of the field, albeit with our ambitious plan to get back to the front. It's Williams. But before we dive into our top 10 ranking of uh, Williams F1 racers, let's again ask the person whose constant list writing is the inspiration for this series to go over just how he puts these rankings together. Now, if you've listened to our opening two podcasts on Ferrari and uh, and Red Bull, you'll be familiar with the format. But for those of you uh, who may not have, li- not have heard those, or frankly, it's, just, it's always nice to just uh, hear his justifications for, for frankly doing this uh, um, this task. It's always good to hear from you, Kev. It's also Sports Chief Editor, Kevin Turner. So... 
Kev, tell us more. Why are we doing this? Um, well, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excuse to get away from the family during Christmas, isn't it? I think that was my... That was, I think that's what I went for over with the Red Bull one. Yeah, no, actually, this the Williams one is kind of... Uh, is the start of it all because... Um, when uh, Sir Frank Williams died at the end of last year, we obviously put a whole load of things together, including a piece by the other guest that we'll get to in a moment. Um, and we had a really nice, you know, a nice sort of tribute, um, and, you know, lots, lots of good, um, uh, good things about Frank and about Williams. And I just, I think I just said in a, in a sort of one of our editorial chat, so well, the only thing we don't really have is a, is a top 10 Williams F1 drivers. And it's like, well, it's probably a bit late now, but, you know, if you fancy doing it. So I, off I went and, and did it. And then it seemed to go reasonably well. So I thought, well, let's do the other big teams. So, yeah, I guess the key point to say um, is that it's, it's what these drivers did for the team or at the team. So it's not the 10 best drivers who ever sat in a Williams. It's, it's what they did for the team and at the team. Um, so the, it w- the order would be different. Uh, potentially different to how you would list the drivers in a greatest racing driver of all time list. So that that's probably the the main uh, the main part of criteria that needs uh, that needs explaining. I'm sure the other sort of more uh, more nuanced bits of criteria will come in as we as we debate uh, during this list. Indeed, but as I say, always worth explaining that. And as you say, Kev, we do of course have a second guest on the podcast uh, today, and this time he's a very special guest joining us. It's former F1 racer and current Sky Sports pundit Karun Chandok. Now, Karun, you're also a Williams Heritage driver, which means you've got excellent insight into the experience and machinery that many of the drivers on this did, but also have had from the, from the cars that they've driven. So, Karun, welcome back to the Autosport podcast. How are you, and how much are you looking forward to arguing with uh, Kev's ten pick? of uh, Kev's pick of the 10 best William drivers, Williams drivers. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, very excited to be here. And I, I love these sort of top 10 debates. It's very funny because you'll never, ever get a conclusive answer to it. But um, it's always fun to debate and argue. Uh, I have to admit, I cheated a little bit because I took Kev's article uh, when I went to have lunch with Jonathan Williams last week. And uh, we debated it first over lunch to see how much we agreed or disagreed with Kev. It's and, good preparation, um, I like you'll it. You'll be pleased to know, Kev, that in general, in general on the Williams list, I don't argue with you as much as um, I will on our subsequent podcast about McLaren, where I pretty much argued every one of your rankings. So, um, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the, the Williams one, um, but there's, listen, as you, said, I was, as you said that, Alex, I was looking down the list, and I, you're right, I've been very lucky to drive a car driven by all of the top 10 on Kev's list which is um which is pretty cool so yeah looking forward to this uh this little debate actually yeah, that's a very good that's a very good point that Karun makes is that it is supposed to be fun right this is supposed to be another way of shedding light on some great stories some great drivers some great cars sometimes um it's not meant to it's not meant to be you know hugely controversial uh it's just meant to be a, a bit of I mean I'll take it very seriously when I'm doing it um as, as you know Alex the various stats and reports and people that I try and speak to to put them together but Ultimately, as Coon says, you can argue about these things kind of well, some of them forever. So it's um, yeah, eventually you have to put your money where your mouth is and just put the list put the list down and see what happens. And it sounds like the real falling out is going to come on in the next episode of this series when we get to McLaren. But uh, it's a little preview let's get to our top ten. Indeed, indeed. And of course, it shows you've got more to go, listeners. Um, well, so to the top 10 ranking. Now, just again to explain very quickly, uh, for each entry, Kev, um, I'll introduce um, the driver you've selected. You're going to explain why they're in that particular slot. And Karun, you're going to uh, examine Kev's reasoning and logic, assuming assuming there is some. Um, and then, of course, um, although um, plenty will come up as we go through the list, uh, we'll assess the drivers didn't quite make the cut. Um, but first off, at, shockingly, at number 10 in a top 10 list, um, it is that entry. And going in at number 10, it's Ricardo 
Riccardo Patrese. He drove for, for Williams in um, the final race in 1987, as well as between 1988 and 1992, winning four times, but no titles. Kev, why is Patrese at number 10? Well, I think part of the criteria has to be kind of um, the sort of a, an element of it has to be the longevity and the contributing to the team. And I think that Patrese very much did, you know, did a good job uh, for Williams. He's he, he wasn't a, you know a mega star like some of the drivers that we've got further up this list. Um, but you know, he contributed obviously to the to the ninety two. Uh, constructors title although I would say that actually he drove better the year before there were times during 1991 with the passive FW14 where he was quicker than Nigel Mansell it took Mansell quite a long time to sort of get on top of Ricardo in 91 so as you say he won some races long long term store of the team um, and I kind of the other the tenth place is always the hard one of the hard ones because by definition you're missing out you're losing out eleventh and I'd say probably a candidate for eleventh would be Carlos Reutemann and for me they're kind of almost either ends of the scale but Trace is a very consistent you know scorer of points Reutemann on his day was probably better than Patrese but just you know the the word enigmatic was almost invented for him I think you know sometimes he'd be amazing and sometimes completely not there and I don't think he did the job for Williams that he perhaps could or should have done um, and of course he left the team <laughs> he left the team after a couple of races of 82 as well whereas Patrese was a you know a sort of a good reliable um you know so- solid drive for Williams is kind of probably how I'd how I'd define him I actually had Patrese as ninth so um I'm going to yeah, I'm, I'm going to argue a, a, a higher position for, for Ricardo because I think actually his contribution is slightly underestimated. If you look at what he did in 89-90, where together with Williams, they developed that Renault engine, which we know from 91 onwards became the benchmark, really, until Renault chose to leave the sport for the first time. Uh, well, not for the first time, but for the nth time <laughs> at the end of 97. And I think Ricardo, when you speak to people at like Williams, they really uh, talk highly about his involvement as a test driver and and, and the way he helped to develop the, that entire package from 1990 into 91, which was the first proper new e-car. Um, and I think Ricardo had a, had a big role to play. As, as Kev said, you know, the first, particularly the first half of 91, he was brilliant, really, really competitive, probably the, the closest driver to Senna in the first half of 91 till, till Mansell hit his stride at Magdi so, yeah, and I think also he was a calming influence in the team. They, you know, if you look at, they'd come off the back of Mansell versus PK, um, particularly 86, 87. And, you know, then having Ricardo arrive at the team just brought a sense of calm, which I think Williams needed, really. So I, I would argue for him to be one, one place above. Um, I'm not going to give away who he's replacing but yeah um, I'd argue for that and I'd probably say um, the person you have ninth to be tenth Yes, I was going to say, would you swap them around? Well, let's get into the driver at number nine. And I, this was sort of the, the, the first name I was a little bit almost surprised to see on the list. I don't quite know why, just maybe... Well, let's get to Kev. You can explain why he's there. Not really for me to say. Uh, number nine, Ralph Schumacher drove for Williams between 1999 and 2004, winning six times, no titles. So Kev, why is uh, Michael Schumacher's younger brother, Ralph, why is he on the list at number nine? Partly because of what you've just said there, in that you're, I think everyone tends to overlook Ralph because he wasn't his brother. And he wasn't exciting as one Pablo Montoya. So I think it's easy to forget that the good job he did. I think actually in uh, 1999, I think he was one of the best drivers of the whole season in any of the cars. I think he was very unfortunate not to win. I think he was really brilliant that season. Um, 
and that can, tends to get forgotten. Um, and then, of course, he was the one that gave Williams their first win. And after that, after as, as Coon said, the Renault pulled out. Obviously, the, the, they lost Newey. The groove tyre rules came in narrower cars, and they really, really, the whole thing threw Williams off its stride. And you know, they did, they only really got back to the front with you know, sort of BMW power and all that sort of thing. And Ralph was the one that delivered that, so that was quite an important moment uh, for them. Uh, and actually, I think he compared pretty well against uh, against Juan Pablo Montoya. In the end, Montoya did get the did get the better of him, but it was I think it was closer than people remember. And he did win, yeah, he did win six times. Uh, for Williams, and that's 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 ahead of Montoya. It's ahead of Reutemann that we mentioned earlier, um, and it's ahead of Patrese. So, I think um, I, I mean I can certainly live with Karun swapping swapping the two around. But in a way, I was trying to challenge that kind of assumption that you know I think Ralph gets a bit of an unfair unfair criticism. Really, you know, it's not his fault. He's not Michael, right? So um, I think he did a, a good job for a while there for Williams. And as you say, Kev, those uh, those six wins make him um, have the, he means he has the highest total of Williams wins uh, compared to any other driver that didn't win the championship. Um, so, Karim, we know you'd, you'd keep Ralph on the list at number ten. Um, what's your impressions? What's your memories of uh, of him as a Williams driver? The highs were very high, weren't they? I mean, I think back to that Canadian Grand Prix where he beat Michael in a straight fight um, on strategy and, and, and was absolutely brilliant. And I think um, I. I I was actually going to mention the 99 season as, as Kev just did, because you know, there were some really, really good performances there. Should have won at the Nürburgring that day when, when Johnny won for Stewart. You know, he was he was really in the pound seat to win that day. Um, a puncture, I on think. On the whole, that season. Exactly, he had, a, he had a puncture. And I think on the whole, that season, he, he led that team pretty much as a single car effort because Zanardi's return to F1 really didn't work out. So, you know, it was sort of a one-car team, um, in, in a tricky situation and the, it's funny with Ralph because I think there were certain tracks where he was almost unbeatable San Marino I'm thinking of um, the Nürburgring he was very good at Mag- Magni Coy he was brilliant at and, and and there'd be other days where he just wouldn't turn up at the party a L- little bit odd and in, in some respect I guess somewhat Reutemann-esque you know in that you'd have these great highs but some days where it'd just be missing um, but ultimately to me I think of Ralph as a BMW driver who happened to be in a Williams rather than a... Although he, I know he joined Williams before BMW were there, over time it kind of became this divided camp, I feel, in that early 2000s era where Montoya was a Williams driver with a BMW engine, whereas Ralph was the reverse. And uh, so in terms of the impact he had on the team, Although he won more races than Juan Pablo, I don't think he had as big an impact on on the Williams as a team as Juan Pablo did. Speaking of Juan Pablo Montoya, let's get to number eight in our entry because it is he. And uh, as you say, you guys, you know, it, it, it often think of him alongside Ralph Schumacher because of all the years that Montoya raced for Williams, uh, they were teammates. He drove for the team between 2001 and 2004, winning four times. Um, so Kev, yeah, can you explain why is, why is Montoya at number eight? Well, I agree with I agree with what uh, Karun said. You know, I think with this it will come out as we get further on the list. There's a certain type of Williams driver, right? They they like well, Patrick Head and Frank Williams liked a driver that they didn't have to put an arm around the shoulder. They, they wanted someone who would just go in there and and throw themselves into battle. And obviously Montoya did that almost instantly when he got to F1 by with an outrageous dive down the inside into the first chicane at, uh, at Interlagos that everyone everyone remembers. Um, I mean, I think he was a bit rough and ready at times. I think he over-defended in Austria that year. 
you know, he, he'd end up driving them both off the road. So I think perhaps he hadn't quite uh, hadn't quite hit the sweet spot of being aggressive, but um, but also making the right decisions. But yeah, I mean, was, on his on his day, he was fantastic. I don't think we saw the best of him in in Formula One. Probably the best we saw of him in F1 was at Williams. I don't think it gelled together at McLaren at all, really. Um, so yeah, exciting driver. Um, took the fight to Schumacher. Obviously, was a little bit a little bit stuffed by the various you know the tire changes in 2003 because he was in the championship fight and then he had that clash with, clash with Rubens Barrichello that took him out of it so 2003 was a very odd year um, but he's probably of the drivers on the list who didn't win a championship he's probably the one that sort of got closest so that kind of added to his um, position ahead of ahead of Ralph and Ricardo as well. I think the drivers all above him are drivers who won world championships for Williams so um, you know really he's got to be the the I don't like to say best of the rest, but let's say best of the non-world champions uh, on the Williams list. So, uh, you know, very ex- it was very exciting, wasn't it? When, when Juan Pablo was around, it's a bit when it's a bit like when you watch Lewis in his younger days at sort of two thousand seven eight era, where you just you were waiting for something to happen. There's there was some there's there's an excitement around him. There was never really a race where he just drive around and finish whatever you know there was always there was a penalty or there was some unbelievable overtaking move or there was you know a crash under the safety car like in Monaco there was just there was always something dramatic happening and um, you know he was a feisty driver who I know the family um, particularly were all very very fond of Juan Pablo you know I remember I remember watching the Brazilian Grand Prix one year with uh, Jonathan and, and Ginny Williams. There was huge excitement just watching one Pablo race against other people. And, uh, you know, I think everyone at Williams had a real soft spot for him. Moving it a little bit sort of further ahead in time from comparisons with Hamilton, do you think there's any comparison between Montoya and Max Verstappen just in the way totally unafraid to take on the established order, very aggressive, very exciting driver? And then, of course, there is that historical link with uh, the accident between Yoss and Juan Pablo. Not obviously that that means he's anything like Max as a driver. But yeah, any 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 more sort of modern comparison with Verstappen, would you say, Karine? I think... It- in many ways, even outside the car, you know, neither of them afraid to speak their mind. Neither of them, you know, I'm thinking of Juan Pablo's that press conference where he was sitting alongside Michael at at Imola and just kept constantly taking digs at Michael for basically running him off the road of the Tosa hairpin. And there's not many people on the planet who would sit next to Michael Schumacher and, and literally take digs at him during a press conference, but. You get the impression that's the sort of stuff that Max would do now, and um, it, you know isn't afraid to wind up the opposition. I think there's one key difference. I I agree with that. Comp- I think there's a lot of parallels. I think Verstappen's probably a more complete driver uh, in F1 terms, perhaps. Uh, except I think there's one key difference, and that is I don't know whether it's down to one Pablo Montoya's character or the fact that he had to be disciplined because of running at 240 miles an hour at super speedways. But he he was generally a, a fair driver and gave people, I think, space and respect in wheel-to-wheel contests, uh, which is why he would flag when Michael Schumacher didn't do that for him. But I feel like that that I don't think we've yet seen that from Max. And that's been, I know that I sound like a broken record, that's been my consistent criticism of him over the last few months. But, but I, I, I stand by that. I think we need to see him showing a bit more respect to, to the other drivers. And I, I do think Montoya did, by and large, do that. 
Very, very quick aside on that clip of Montoya um, uh, having a drive at Michael Schumacher. Uh, the, the journalist asking the question in that pre- press conference is motorsport.com's Jonathan Noble, who confessed that he'd completely forgotten about it until the clip resurfaced on F1's Twitter, uh, social media channels recently. Let's get on to the next driver on this list. And it's the first Williams World Champion that we've got on this list. At number seven, it's Jacques Villeneuve. Race for the team between 1996 and 1998, won 11 times and, of course, took that title in 1997. Kev, why is Villeneuve at number seven? In one sense, it's because he's world champion, as Kroon said. Although, actually, I would argue that perhaps his least convincing season at Williams was the one where he won the title. Rarely has someone made such heavy weather of winning a world championship with a car with that level of superiority. I mean, the the team contributes to that as well, you know, starting on slicks at Monaco in the wet and that sort of thing. So um, so I think that, that, that he was, you know... <laughs> 97 could have been better although he was obviously great as a rookie in, in 96 and actually you know he really showed some of his feistiness when Williams lost its way a little bit in 98 as well and then there were some there were some great moments obviously in his, his championship winning year and going wheel to wheel with Michael at Jerez you know that was a great movie he, he made I think um, and he caught, caught Michael by surprise and you can see Michael's obviously initial reaction is to, is to get out the way before he then turns the wheel again so yeah a, a Williams world champion I'd like to know you know what would have happened if they hadn't sacked Damon Hill and put Heinz Fences in because I think you then might have a greater chance of holding on to Adrian Newey you've also got someone who knows how to set up the car because the Frenson really was a bit of a you know a lot of the time in that season really not at the races so um be interesting to see what would happen with his next two or three years if, if they'd not made that decision but um uh, yeah, he, he he did win the world championship, so um, that was that was the the main reason to get him up in in seventh. Yeah, I I broadly agree with that. I think um, you know certainly I remember Jacques uh, arrived in 1996. It was really exciting. You know, he would do these audacious moves like going around the outside of Michael or Desterill, uh at the last corner, and and it, it was exciting to watch. You know, it was. Uh, um, it was. I thought. I always thought it was cool to see a driver from IndyCar come to Formula One and be competitive. I remember being hugely disappointed when Michael Andretti, um, you know, his transition didn't work out in '93. I, I was a big fan of Michael Andretti in IndyCar, and I thought this is going to be great. And then it just didn't happen for him. And so I was really excited to see Jacques come and come back to F or come to F1 and be competitive in '96. The the '96 Williams. FW18 was head and shoulders above the opposition and he he did a great job pushing Damon hard for that championship I think uh, in 97 there were some really odd situations wasn't there I mean you had the Suzuka penalty and uh, you had as, as you said Kev you had the race in Monaco where they started on, on slicks but you know he got quite you know quite badly out qualified by Frenson already on in in Monaco, didn't he, on that day? So he was already further behind on the grid. Uh, I think, yeah, Jacques, Jacques you know, he, he delivered what he came to do, which was he delivered the World Championship. He, I think in 98, I'm thinking of races like Hockenheim and, and places like that where he drove very well in the Williams. Um, but the car, it sort of peaked. On the whole, he had a good impact on the team. I felt he, he you know, when you again speak to engineers, people like that, he was quirky. He was different. He, but wasn't afraid to butt heads with people like Patrick. But he he made a on the whole a positive impact. I think on the team. You know, they they certainly enjoyed having him in the team and and in the in that environment. If you look at 
his working relationship that year with Damon was really positive. They got on very well. And um, I think, yeah, on the whole, that's seventh is probably right. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Well, let's move on to number six. And I think number six, Kev, probably a fair example of a driver where you say it's this is all about, you know, what impact did they have on Williams as opposed to where they rank in sort of a debate about who's the greatest driver. Because at number six, it's Alain Prost. Uh, only drove for Williams in 1993, won seven times and, of course, the title. But, of course, everyone, you know, famous four-time world champion, think of everything else he achieved. Um, but number six, why is, why is he there? Is it, is it purely because, you know, he came in, did the job, that was that was sort of it, really. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he would if I was doing just a list of the greatest racing drivers of all time. He's ahead of anyone else on this list, right? Over across what they've you know what what they did in their careers. But it was it was one year, um, and he. It's not like he was there developing the Williams Renault into a superior package. Prior to that, he very much worked his way into that into that seat, um, and he did deliver. So you know, he delivered a championship. I know that Patrick. Um, you know, bearing in mind that I think Alan was probably past his best really by then there were still some incredible silky smooth very rapid uh qualifying laps i know i think pat patrick was was quite impressed with that um and actually there were some there was some good races as well i mean people forget you know everyone remembers donnington but actually he also you know he he did beat Ayrton senna and damon in the other car in the wet at imola you know he wasn't wasn't a complete um yeah it wasn't a complete just cruise and collect championship you know he did put in some some good races um so yeah, but he, I don't think you can go any higher than sixth because ultimately it was a superior car. He didn't develop it. He had a very inexperienced teammate, and he was just there for the one year before he retired. So I couldn't really justify moving up ahead of uh, of some of the other drivers uh, on this list. Williams always thought of Prost as a McLaren driver who came in for a year, did his bit, didn't really integrate himself with the team, came, saw, conquered, and left basically. Um, you know, I th- I th- he never truly became a Williams Williams driver. Um, I think he, and also, and I remember speaking to Alan about it. Um, we went for dinner once, and I was we were talking about different cars and his favorite cars, and, and he he never really liked the feel of an active suspension car. He didn't like the sort of movements that the active car gave him. It felt unnatural to him, so he he said to me he he won that world championship by driving. Never ever at a hundred percent. He always drove within himself uh, and left something in reserve because he didn't really enjoy the feel of the car, um, and it was still enough for him to win the championship. Such was the superiority, particularly of the Renault engine. I think that year. I think actually the McLaren chassis, the MP48, was a very good chassis. Um, and if you look at the last couple of races, they they unlocked a bit more performance from the. I think it's on the floor of the diffuser. I remember speaking to someone at McLaren and Senna obviously won Suzuka and Adelaide at the end of 93. But the the chassis of the McLaren was a very good car. I think it was the um, the Renault engine in particular that just gave Williams that that leg up. Um, obviously, the 15C, you know, the, the 15C was a good chassis from Williams, but the engine in particular gave them a big advantage. 
And Prost may full use of it, but I think in terms of impact on the team, he that's probably the right place to to rank him uh, in terms of Williams rankings. Well, Karun, as a driver, what what's your experience of those active ride cars? Why 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 do you think it was that Prost wasn't so comfortable with that system? I think a driver like Nigel who was you know he would just bully a car and get it to he he dominated a car in a way that very few other drivers did and he was perhaps less sensitive to to these sort of movements and, and nuances of the car um and, and he just had this unbelievable confidence not not to ever suggest that Alain Prost was short of confidence, but they're just d- different ways of extracting performance in the car. And perhaps Prost was a little bit more sensitive to car setup and to the um, the way a car felt than someone like Nigel. And N- Nigel was the perfect active suspension driver. Uh, I would imagine a driver like Montoya would be probably similar, where they drive in an aggressive way, N- not in terms of you know wheel to wheel battle, but actually in terms of Pulling and hustling the car, um, they their characters are such. So, I think Alan never, you know. And when you drive, I've driven both the fourteen B from ninety two and the fifteen C from ninety three, and you can feel that. It is a bit unnatural, you know. I remember you turn into Stoke Corner and you feel this sort of movement from from the outside wheel where it's it's leveling off the platform to keep the aero stable, and although you know. It's going to happen and you understand why it's happening and it, it, it does slightly catch you off guard. And, you know, admittedly, I haven't driven the cars as much as they did in Peru when they were testing it for thousands and thousands of kilometers. Um, but you can understand why it, it, to someone like Alain who'd spent by that stage, what, a dozen years in Formula One driving passive cars, it, it probably did feel a little bit unusual. Mm, indeed, indeed. Well... Let's go on to number five. Uh, it's another driver with a short Williams uh, tenure, but a big impact. It's Nelson Piquet. Drove for the team between 1986 and, of course, 1987. Uh, won seven times and took the 87 title. Kev, why is Piquet at number five? Well, Karun said that he felt that... I like that quote about the Prost was a McLaren driver who sort of jumped into into Williams. I kind of feel like Piquet, to me, is a Brabham driver. Right? If we were doing a Brabham list, it's either him or Jack at number one, I would say. Um but at Williams, you know, he didn't get the deal that he bargained for. He thought he got it number one. Uh, and in 86, him, him and Mansell were nip, nip and tuck. Uh, if you go through the qualifying sessions and the races, it was pretty marginal between the two of them. Um, Nigel ends up winning 5-4 and wins. But then in 87, after he rattles himself at Tamburello, enormous accident. I don't think Nelson is the same after that. And Mansell really completely flattens him in 87. But has bad luck he has the wheel nut fall off or whatever it is at Hungary he blows up in Germany when him and Alain Prost and the McLaren are disappearing down the road PK inherits those two wins uh, and sort of he's just consistently picking up those sort of seconds thirds fourths um, when you know Matt Man- and Mansell loses some big points and, and to me PK should never be 1987 world champion he's the fourth best driver of the season um, but the McLaren isn't good enough Senna's Lotus isn't really good enough and Mansell's luck doesn't hold long enough so uh, so he does win the championship and he contributes to two constructors titles so you know, and seven Grand Prix wins and there were some days where he was utterly brilliant I mean his move on Senna at Hungary in 86 I, I reckon he's one of the greatest F1 passing moves by anyone of all, all time um, so you know he, had, he has to be on the list but for me I think he's a less convincing Williams driver than, than he was a, a Brabham driver obviously there was also the tension within the team 
you wouldn't say it was just down to Nelson, but he could be quite an abrasive character as well. Uh, and after Mansell's accident at Suzuka, Nelson does nothing. He, he checks out, basically. Um, and, and, and Williams, yeah, the car that's the, basically dominated the season doesn't do anything for the last two rounds and Ferrari wins. So, yeah, he had to be on the list, but I, I just, I, I felt like PK's better days were, were when he wasn't at Williams. This is one where I actually argue with um, Kev's list because I think PK probably would be number four on my list because of the impact he had of the team. You know, when I I remember speaking to to um, actually Frank and Jonathan one day, um, probably six seven years ago, we were talking about PK, and I remember them saying it was it was the first superstar who'd arrived at Williams, you know, already as world champion. And that had a huge um, motivational factor for the, for everybody there. You know, it, it felt, I remember Frank saying it, it was some, it felt like sort of validation, finally, that despite the fact that they'd already won championships with Jones and, and Keki by that stage, having Nelson arrive as a double world champion gave you know gave him and the team this this bit of a boost that okay we are now well and truly part of the established top teams that um established superstars on big money are willing to come and sign with us and i think nelson um people people talk about 87 and i don't disagree entirely with kev in terms of you know he he was arguably the fourth fastest driver but the impact of his accident from Imola early on the year, I think, is very, very underestimated. You know, he he really, I think that had the knock on the head he had there isn't often talked about. You know, he had struggles. I think I remember Frank Durney saying, I think he struggled with even visibility and vision on occasion and really bad headaches for the rest of that year. And I think you can't underestimate that. You know, you just have to go back and watch that accident um, and, and think about the, you know, the safety standards of the cars and the helmets and stuff that they had then to realise what sort of an impact that must have had on Nelson's season. And in in 86, he was right up there. You know, in um, in, in Adelaide, if they'd chosen to change tyres, you know, Pross got lucky because he had a puncture and had to change tyres and Goodyear told Nelson and Nigel to carry on. Nigel's tyre blew and Nelson pitted. So the, the reality is Nelson could quite easily have, and in fact, if that race had been two laps longer, it would have probably passed Prost. So, uh, yeah, I, I think on the whole, Nelson had a bigger impact on the team than perhaps people recognise and, and realise. Coming to number four, Karin, you mentioned him just briefly in passing there. It's Keki Rosberg, drove for Williams between 1982 and 1985, winning five times and the world title in 1982. Kev, why is Rosberg at number four for you? Yeah, well, I mean, Karin mentioned it. This was to the positions that I did kind of flip between flipping them round because you can, as Karin just has done, you can argue it You can argue it very well the other way. The reason I put uh, Keki ahead, there were, there were a couple of reasons, really. One was I think that he over-delivered on expectation. You know, if you think that, the, that really... Williams, when yeah, they sort of in very short order lost Alan Jones and Carlos Reutemann, um, and and Keke, and then they really were left kind of a bit short, and they threw Keki in there, and I think I don't think he anyone could have really done a better job with that. Okay, he was up against the turbos, um, 
so he was never he was rarely going to be the fastest car certainly in qualifying but you know he was a, he, he kind of fitted the Williams mold I think quite nicely you know as a charger sideways into the racing element of it um, and I think he he didn't have as good you know in terms of where Williams were competitively at that time particularly then into 83 and 84 I think the car he has isn't as good as the one that 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 PK has in 86 87 so I kind of thought that he uh he made more of what he had when he was at Williams uh than than PK did but I I can com- completely see Karun's point that PK definitely was the first established superstar to join the team because of course Rosberg and Jones were were made at the team, if you like. Green, what do you make of uh, Kev's reasoning there? And just just to be clear, would you have PK direct swap, swap them around, have PK4 and Rosberg 5? Yeah, exactly that. Kepke was a driver that both Frank and Patrick loved, you know, they and, and Frank Durney as well, who was obviously a huge part of the team in that era. And, and they they really, they liked the fact that Kepke was a no-nonsense driver. There was none of the airs and graces about he just got in got on with the job and and delivered in the car uh, you know he to me although he you know 82 he won the world championship and obviously won that grand prix at dijon it's the the monaco win in 83 is the one that's the standout for me I mean, you, you just you look at what he did in that car uh, slicks on a damp track in monaco it's just unbelievable when you watch some of the footage of him driving around that place and uh, so you know a a great driver who was perfect for Williams at that time I think they they sort of they they were reeling a little bit with the loss of Jones and then Reutemann went um, early in 82 and they, they needed someone to Pick the mantle up and and, and be their team leader um, in in a very sort of pragmatic, no nonsense way. And Keki ticked that box beautifully well. And I think then when the Honda came along in in eighty four, um, it, it it wasn't great. You know, there was issues with drivability and, and the way the the power was being delivered. And I think Keki was a was a key part in trying to just be that bridge between going from the normally aspirated cars into the, the Honda Turbo and just trying to help the team and, and um, you know, develop that relationship along with with uh, with Honda, which they carried into 85. So I think, um, yeah, you know, a great team player and, and, a, and a, a good part of the Williams legacy. Well, just before we move on to the driver at number three, Kev, you've used one of my favourite words to describe Rosberg when you say he's a swashbuckling improviser. I don't know, but I, I, I just think the way you say that word makes it sound good. It is a good word, actually. And I think it's really interesting because I considered Nico Rosberg to be an optimizer. Like Whenever he was having to improvise and it was wet or whatever, he, that was a weakness of his, I would say, compared to his contemporaries. Whereas his dad, I think that was a strength. You know, it was quite often the races where, that, like the Monaco one or the Dallas one, where the track was falling to bits. He was he was a great improviser. That was kind of almost his his thing. So I just think that's quite an interesting contrast between the, the two world championship winning uh, Rosberg members of that family. Indeed. Well, coming on to another father and son combo uh, to win F1 uh, Formula One titles. Number three, it's actually my first motorsport hero. And Karun, your colleague at Sky Sports F1, it's Damon Hill, number three on Kev's list. Uh, race volume has been 1993 and 1996, but of course, very successful test driver before that. Won 21 times and took the 1996 title. So Kev, why is Damon Hill at number three? Well, I, I think the top three on this list pick themselves, uh, really, they're, for, for different reasons. They're, I think they're a clear top three. 
Damon's second most successful Williams driver in terms of wins, second most successful in terms of poles. Um, I think yeah, you th- you you do kind of think of Damon at Williams, um, and obviously he was there in '94 and helped pick, you know in the way that the Graham Hill helped pick Lotus up at uh, after Jim Clark's death in 1968. You know Damon did that uh, in 1994 after Ayrton Senna was killed at Imola. I think he showed showed incredible um, personal courage um, and interestingly, I think you know when you speak to Damon or read his book, you, you kind of feel that it, perhaps he wasn't loved in quite the same way as some of the other drivers on this list. You know, sort of Patrick and Frank were less convinced, perhaps, uh, because he wasn't obviously signed as a number one. That wasn't the plan. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, he was a good test driver that got the got the second seat sort of thing. But I think if you look at what he did there. Yeah, it was it was it was it was pretty impressive. I like the story that he tells from '94, where he's been banging on about the same car problems all season, and even Mansell comes in for his one drive. At the, I think it was the French Grand Prix, and said exactly the same thing. And immediately the team were like, "Yep, yeah, right, okay." And he could just see that there was just that slight difference of obviously Mansell was the former you know world champion coming back with him still trying to prove himself. So I think yeah, there was that there was that background. So yeah, I think um, Damon's probably a bit. Bit underrated at times, actually, because uh, there, there were some special days, and there weren't many people that was go- that were going to be able to beat Marcus Schumacher in the wet at Suzuka as he did in '94. Um, and of course, he won a world title. So for me, he was a very solid top three choice in this list. I uh, I'm actually going to agree with Kev on uh, the next three, so <laughs> uh, which is good. But I I think you know Damon had a big impact uh, at Williams. First as a test driver, I think you know you have to think about the thousands of laps that he did developing that active suspension car. You know, he was the one out in Pembury with Paddy Lowe dealing with a car that would do, you know, half a lap, break down the back straight and sit on the deck and all the hydraulic fluid leaking everywhere. And, you know, the the long days of grafting to get that system to work was a lot of it was thanks to Damon. Uh, Obviously, Mark Blundell was there at the time as well. I think Damon... um, you know, when he got his opportunity in in ninety three, he, he sort of fell into it, didn't he? Because Patrese had jumped ship to um, to Benetton and, and didn't want to wait to see how the musical chairs between Senna, Prost, and Mansell played out. Uh, and all of a sudden, Damon found himself in that that race seat. But he, he you know, he did a, a great job for Williams, and the the impact he had in particular after Imola 94, I think is one of the most extraordinary things in Formula 1 history. Think of the bravery, right? You know, you've just seen your teammate, the the great, arguably one of the greatest drivers of all time, get killed in, a, in an accident. You have to get back in that car. Uh, and you don't know at that stage whether it was something fundamental in the car that broke. You, nobody know, knew at that time, and in fact, even today, nobody knows definitively what happened uh, with Senna's crash. And and he did, and, he, and then he, he lifted the team and he carried them through that season um, very much in the way that his father did after Jim Clark died. I think, you know, there's, there's some real strong parallels there. And, you know, obviously, Clark was the best driver of his generation and Senna of, on the grid in 94. So, um, and Damon, he didn't deserve to lose his seat, I think, at the end of 96. You know, when you when you look back in hindsight, and I'm sure um, now, and I well, I know for a fact, you know, if you call Patrick up or Adrian and people like that, they all, they all I think, now recognise that actually 
keeping Damon and Jack for 97 would have probably been the better choice. And um, so he was only at Williams, you know, in a race seat for for those four seasons. I say only, but he was there for those four seasons. But a huge, huge impact on the team in that era. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Indeed. Well, I mean, uh, I'm also. Um, we often do. Well, we always do this with uh, Kev's top ten list. We reveal number one and number and uh, number two at the same time. Just it makes it easier to explain why they're in that particular order. But I'm now thinking, really, I should have, num- should have done number three as well, based on uh, the comments you've both made there. But before we do get into number two and number one, Kev, any other drivers that didn't make the cut or were in consideration, but were you know places 12, 13, 14 and we've discussed Reutemann and why he didn't make the list. But was there any other drivers? Anybody else? Not, not really. I mean, I guess you, you know, Clay Reggett's only deserves a bit of an honourable mention, obviously for being, yeah, for providing that first Williams World Championship win. But I don't think you would, you would put him ahead of any of of any of those drivers. Um, obviously, Thierry Boots needed a couple of years there and, and and won three races. So there, there were there were a couple of other drivers, yeah, you, you know, honourable mentions if you like. Um, but I, I don't think. I mean, Karun's I, I, not mentioned. You know, anyone outside of the ten that we should bring in? I'm interested to see if there's anyone. I can't think of anyone obvious other than Reutemann, really, who we've discussed. Who you bring into the ten instead? In my view, this is a list of the impact that these drivers had at that team. Um, is is the way I sort of try and try to categorise it. And you look at the impact that Senna had. <laughs> In, in a very short space of time. You know, he, is, he, he only raced three races. Um, but, the, yeah, the impact he had on the team was, was massive. And, and it's, you know, that, that to me was um, something that I toyed with in my head. But, yeah, otherwise I think, you know, we've, we've sort of, I think we've, we've got the right 10 people. In I mean, the list. other one would be George Russell, right, in terms of impact, in terms of being part of the, the, the rebuilding. But I don't know, it just it's 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 hard, it's much harder to judge drivers who are a team when they're, well, I was going to say midfield, but obviously in his case, at, at the back, it's just a, it's a different set of challenges to when you're up there fighting for wins and championships and your teammates are other champions. So it's really, really difficult to, to argue someone in from that position even someone as good as George who in five or ten years time we might say oh you know multiple Grand Prix and world champion so um, yeah and I'm fairly happy with the ten names in there I think and I guess also with Russell you'd have to see how well the Williams rebuild goes if it if this is the peak say then that you know that, that is what it is but it, if it goes on to be something bigger and better then uh, that, that will, will form a part of, uh, of that story but let's go on to the top two drivers uh, at number two it's Alan Jones, uh, race for Williams between 1978 and 1981, won 11 times and, of course, took the title in 1980. And at number one, Nigel Mansell, we've discussed him a bit earlier on, three stints for Williams, uh, 1985 to 1988, 1991 to 1992, and, of course, um, the, uh, the, 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 the appearances in 1994, 28 Williams wins and the 1992 world title. So, Kev, why is Mansell ahead of Jones in this list? Well, I'll talk about Jones first. 
because he he is the first, right? So he's the first. Uh, they didn't win, didn't take Williams' first Grand Prix win. He he should have done really, um, and he did. Yeah, you know, he did fight for the seventy nine title. I mean, I think that they were convinced. You know, Patrick Head is quite open about the the FWO six being. You know, it was quite a. Yeah, it was a, it was a neat car, but it wasn't particularly revolutionary, and the quality control on it wasn't as good as he he would have liked. So it wasn't as reliable as he. Um, as obviously later Williams's would be, but they, I think they realised early on they had a real hard charger on their hands. I think it was Long Beach when he's charging through up to second place um, for a while, uh, and yeah, like we were saying, Patrick and Frank like to race. Uh, Alan himself admitted he wasn't the greatest qualifier; he just couldn't really get him, get in the zone. But he, he he definitely had it in the races. I think he's probably a bit underrated by history actually because his career was so short. He should definitely have hung around in 82. I think he was brilliant in 81 and he's a bit unlucky and he could well have won the championship in 82. And if you're suddenly for a double world champion in three years against Nelson Piquet, you know, you're probably elevated up that list a bit more. So yeah, he, he had to be right up there. But ultimately, Nigel Mansell had so much success at Williams, you know, 28 of his 31 wins. That's a significant percentage of Williams's. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's more than a more than a third, isn't it, of their of their total? No, more than a quarter of their of their total wins. So, um, and you could see the the galvanising force he had when he rejoined in in '91 and 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 pushing things forward. And yeah, he he's the he's the classic Williams driver in the sense that he was he was very much a fighter as well. I'd I'd go as far as I think Mance was the greatest overtaker in F1 history. Um, that's a, that's, a, that's a debate for another day, but um, I mean, Red Five, the FW14B is probably the most iconic Williams. Nigel put in its you know its most successful season. Um, as much as I'm a fan of Alan Jones, and he was very important to the Williams story, I just thought it, you couldn't argue you couldn't argue uh, anyone other than Mansell. This is one of the easier number ones, I think, in all the lists that I did. You think of Williams drivers, you think of Mansell, don't you? You, you literally just Red Five is the first thing that comes to your head. Um, and in, in so many ways, it's in contrast to Prost, isn't it? When Nigel went to McLaren, it just didn't it just didn't look right. Like seeing Nigel standing next to Ron Dennis there, it just it seems so strange that whole thing. Uh, and unsurprisingly, it all fell apart quite quickly. But um, yeah, just a, a a brilliant, brilliant racing driver. Um, I, I think you know Nigel had lots of flaws um outside the car i think that there's there's lots of people who within the team found him difficult to work with i think but not a single person doubted his commitment and ability in the car Uh, and i think where nigel gets slightly underestimated actually is the fact that that era of racing we're talking about you know he was carrying probably 10 12 kilos maybe 15 kilos to prost in terms of weight just you know, he was he was just bigger built than either of them, and at that time the driver plus weight wasn't the way they measured the the cars. You know, they they looked at it as pure car weight. So, you think fifteen kilos, he's carrying an extra three or four tenths of lap time every single lap uh, against Prost and Senna, and he was still right up there competing against them. You know, should have been strong argument to be world champion in eighty six, again in eighty seven, um, maybe even ninety one. So, you know, it's it's a bit like the Fernando Alonso story, isn't it? You think of Fernando's eight points away from being a five-time world champion. Um, I haven't actually looked at the numbers for Nigel, but I, I imagine he's not far away from being a four-time world champion, really. So I, I know, you know, there's lots of story about in 92, frankly, most drivers on the grid could have won that championship. 
but he he deserved that, you know, and I think he he well and truly deserved that title. And um, yeah, uh, just uh, a, an extraordinary showman as well, wasn't it? it? It's a bit like I was saying before with Montoya. There's always drama around Nigel. There's you know whether he's he's collapsing when he gets out of the car or he bumps his head on the truck when they're taking him to the podium. Was it? I think it was Austria, was it? In, um, when Murray then goes and pokes his bump on the head. Um, you know, the crowd invasions, there's the, the dramatic tyre blowout. It's just, the, the the drama just followed Nigel. But, you know, listen, I, I'm, I'm a big, big Nigel fan. I, I think um, he was great for the sport. He was great for Williams. I love, I, I, I love the fact that he won his last ever race at Williams. And in 94 I think that's that's a really nice way for him to I wish he didn't come back in 95 um, to the McLaren thing it would have been a nice way to round up his his Formula 1 career but I think yeah on, on the whole huge huge um, impact no, on I agree team. with everything that, that Coon said but also like to add and he, unlike some of the people on this list I think he also showed he could carry a, carry a car when it wasn't very good you know in 88 there were some brilliant before. I mean, the car was atrociously unreliable, unfortunately. But there were some brilliant performances where he was sort of the closest thing to a challenger McLaren had when the car was actually working. And so it wasn't just a, oh, he delivers his best when he was in a yeah you know, was in a competitive car. He would he would he would go for it and get stuck in when it when it wasn't as well. So um, yeah, as I say, a fairly easy easy number one. Uh, but yeah, I completely agree with Karun. If only you'd called it a day after Adelaide '94. <laughs> Kev, thank you for your list. Karun, thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, that's it for today. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening, and we'll be back soon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Feeling stuck in your current job? Looking for a career pivot? Are you a proven leader looking to step up? The University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business prepares students to meet challenges, solve problems, and obtain a profound understanding of how to operate in the modern economy. With MBA and MS programs offering flexible options to fit your lifestyle and goals. GMAT and GRE not required. Learn more today at go.umd.edu slash smithschool. University of Maryland Smith School of Business. Inspired. Fearless. Unstoppable. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.